Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today, we ask Pastor Larry an important question, and we take a closer look at one of the most widely recognized chapters in the Bible that offers hope and encouragement. Friends, God is still on the throne, and prayer changes things. It's a brand new week at Watchmen on the Wall. This week, we'll be unmasking the Chaldean spirit with Zev Parat. And Don Perkins will be examining the false Christs in the last days. A moment of prophecy with James Collins and a Bible in the News report from Marvin McIlvaney. An outstanding week of bringing clarity to the chaos. Thanks for being here. Don't miss a moment of this daily program. Download our SWRC mobile app and take Watchmen on the Wall with you on your smartphone and tablet. Just search SWRC in your app store. It's free and it's another way to stay up to date with Watchmen on the Wall. The Lord is my shepherd. These are the opening words of one of the most memorized, inspirational, and comforting passages in the Bible and one of the greatest poems of all time. For over 3,000 years, countless generations have turned to Psalm 23 for strength during times of trouble. Though this little psalm was written in a different time and place, the lessons it contains are as up-to-date as the 21st century. James Collins looks at these six short verses and helps you and I find encouragement to enjoy the green pastures of life while becoming strengthened by the dark valleys. The Lord is my shepherd. Those are the opening words of what is perhaps the most loved passage in the Bible, the 23rd Psalm. Psalm 23 is perhaps the most memorized, inspirational, and comforting passages in the Word of God. For over 3,000 years, countless generations have turned to Psalm 23 for strength during times of trouble. However, most people are unaware of the rich meaning behind the world's best known and most loved poem. Joining me today on the Watchman on the Wall is the staff evangelist for Southwest Radio Ministries, James Collins. Beacon Street Press recently published a new book that James authored about the 23rd Psalm titled, The Shepherd. And I think after you hear about this outstanding book, you'll want to get your own copy. James, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you, Dr. Spargimino. I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me about The Shepherd. What prompted you to write a book about the 23rd Psalm? First of all, Psalm 23 is one of my favorite psalms. It's probably one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I remember memorizing Psalm 23 when I was a little kid in Sunday school. Over the years, I've come back to it repeatedly. I'm not alone in my love for Psalm 23. I believe that the 23rd Psalm is the best-known chapter in the Bible. Now, John 3.16 is, of course, the best-known verse, but Psalm 23 is the best-known chapter in the Bible. The 23rd Psalm is one of the most familiar, famous, and loved passages in all of the Word of God. For 3,000 years, people have turned to this psalm in their time of greatest need for comfort and hope. I remember September 11, 2001. Everybody remembers that day when our country was attacked by al-Qaeda, and those terrorists coordinated those attacks that resulted in 2,977 deaths and over 25,000 injuries. It was the deadliest terrorist attack in human history. And I remember on the night of September 11, 2001, President George W. Bush 
came on television and delivered a message from the White House to comfort and reassure the nation. And of all the passages in the Bible that President Bush could have quoted, he chose Psalm 23. He said, Tonight I ask for your prayers for all those who grieve, for the children whose worlds have been shattered, for all whose sense of safety and security has been threatened, and I pray they will be comforted by a power greater than any of us spoken through the ages in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. And I remember those words from the president back then, and it just amazes me that Psalm 23 is loved by everyone, even presidents. And Dr. Spargimino, I believe it's so well-loved because it speaks to our trials in life. There's no greater picture of the relationship that God has with his people than the picture found in the 23rd Psalm, the picture of the shepherd and the sheep. And that's the main reason I wrote the book. Second of all, I wrote The Shepherd because I did a study through the Psalms several years ago, and I discovered there was more to Psalm 23 than meets the eye. For example, Psalm 23 has a prophetic element to it. Most people don't realize that. It's set in the middle of three messianic psalms that present the coming work of the Messiah. Psalm 22 is the psalm of the cross. It's amazing. 1,000 years before Jesus went to the cross of Calvary, David described in graphic detail the crucifixion. It's almost as if he himself hung there on the cross. In the 22nd Psalm, David described Roman crucifixion hundreds of years before the Romans even came on the scene. In the days when the Jews executed people by stoning, the psalmist described the sufferings of the cross. He described God turning his back on the Messiah as he took the sins of the world. He described the people beneath the cross gathered there to laugh at Jesus. He described his bones being out of joint. He spoke about the effects of the crucifixion on the heart. He described the Lord's exhaustion. He described Jesus's extreme thirst. He spoke about the hands and feet of the Lord being pierced. He described the shame as the people gawked at the Messiah's unclothed body on the cross. He even described the soldiers beneath the cross gambling. David wrote those descriptions a thousand years before the crucifixion of Jesus. It's just amazing. Jesus said to us in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. And when the Lord said those words, he spoke of his death on the cross, and that's the picture of Jesus in the 22nd Psalm. He is the good shepherd who gives his life for his sheep. Then we see in the 23rd Psalm, the picture changes from the good shepherd to the great shepherd. Psalm 23 is the shepherd psalm. It's a beautiful picture of the shepherd who cares for his flock, leads us through the meadow, feeds us in green pastures, and even quenches our thirst beside still waters. Even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we have no need to fear because our shepherd is there to comfort us. The writer of Hebrews described the shepherd of Psalm 23 when he wrote, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. The good shepherd of John 10 is now called the great shepherd. And notice also there that the writer of Hebrews referenced the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the picture of the Lord in the 23rd Psalm. He is the great shepherd raised from the dead through the blood of the everlasting covenant who tenderly cares 
for his flock. Then you find Psalm 24. That psalm is the psalm of the king of glory, and it describes the coronation of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. The final verses of that psalm describe the triumphant return of the Lord. In Psalm 24, 9 through 10, we read, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. The 24th Psalm foreshadows the establishment of the Lord's millennial kingdom when Jesus is going to return and enter Jerusalem as the King of glory. It's a prophetic psalm that will ultimately be fulfilled when the Lord returns to earth someday soon, I believe. The Apostle Peter wrote to encourage church leaders with these words in 1 Peter 5, verse 4, And when the chief shepherd shall appear... Ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Here the great shepherd of Hebrews 13 is now referred to as the chief shepherd. And that's the picture of Jesus in the 24th Psalm. He's the chief shepherd who owns the sheep. When he comes, he'll set up his kingdom, set up his throne, and we who have served him will rule and reign with him for a thousand years. So you see, the awesome thing about the 23rd Psalm, it fits there in the middle of these three prophetic psalms. Psalm 22 speaks of our past, of our sins being forgiven on the cross. Psalm 23 speaks of our present life on this earth. And Psalm 24 speaks of our future in the coming millennial kingdom of Christ. And we find, again, the 23rd Psalm set right there in the middle of these three amazing messianic psalms that present the coming work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, friends, if you're just joining us, I'm talking with James Collins about his book, The Shepherd. James also has a teaching DVD of The Shepherd. You can get the book or the DVD or both by calling 1-800-652-1144, or you can go to our website, swrc.com. James, biblical context is important because it can help prevent wrong interpretations of Scripture bad theology, and confusion while reading God's Word. It can also help you realize the full meaning of a passage and get the most out of your Bible study. You emphasize context in this book. Context matters to preserve and present biblical truth. I believe that we should never ask what a passage means to us today until we first know what those words and phrases meant to those we meet in the Bible. So in The Shepherd, I wanted to restore the historical, cultural, literary, visual, and geographic context of that passage so we can understand it as a Middle Eastern villager would have first understood it. And I think that gets us closer to the original meaning of the passage and closer to the Holy Spirit's intended life-changing message. In The Shepherd, you look at the 23rd Psalm and the biblical context of the relationship of the shepherd and his sheep. Can you give me an example? Off the top of my head, one of the primary needs of sheep is water. An average healthy sheep requires several gallons of water per day. So you multiply that by the size of a herd and you understand that shepherds were always on the lookout for water. David used the picture of the shepherd searching for water when he wrote, He leadeth me beside the still waters. Now, the meaning of still waters has to do with sheep needing still, quiet waters to drink. It's stilled waters. They cannot be watered at a place where the water is swift. Sheep are afraid of rushing water. They're 
woolly. If their wool gets wet, they can fall in and drown. They can become top heavy. So even if they're thirsty, sheep will not drink from a rushing stream or a rushing river. So the shepherd has to find a calm pool to water the sheep in. He must lead his sheep to stilled waters. So David uses that imagery to describe how God provides for our needs. And David continues on with that imagery later on when he writes, my cup runneth over. Now at certain times of the year, the shepherd would move the sheep to higher lands, to the mountains. Now there were no ponds or sources of still waters in the mountain tablelands. So the shepherd watered the sheep from wells. And those wells were about 100 or so feet deep. The shepherd would use a leather bucket that held about three quarters of a gallon of water. He lowered the bucket into the well, filled. Then he would take the bucket and he would fill a large stone basin with water. Now, interestingly, that stone basin was called a cup. The sheep would not stick their head down into the cup So the shepherd had to keep it filled to the brim and overflowing, and that allowed the sheep to drink easily. And that's the imagery that we find in the 23rd Psalm behind the words, my cup runneth over. You also look at the application of the 23rd Psalm. How is the shepherd's psalm applicable to us today? Well, it applies to us in many ways. Take, for example, what it means for the Lord to be your shepherd. It's personal. It means to have a one-on-one relationship with the shepherd. Well, you illustrate that relationship with a story about a little boy named Donnie. It's a wonderful story. Will you share the story with us? Several years ago, a little nine-year-old boy named Donnie suffered from leukemia. Donnie's parents knew that he wouldn't live long, that he would soon die, so they sent for their pastor. The pastor came one night to visit Donnie in the hospital, and the disease had withered him away. The little boy was skin and bones. He had machines and tubes hooked up to his frail little body. He was pale and very weak. Donnie appeared to be only about half conscious, was unable to speak, and the pastor was left there alone in the hospital room with him. The pastor sat with Donnie. He held his hand and he prayed, and after some time, the pastor left the hospital, drove home, and he went to bed. Early the next morning, the pastor went back to the hospital to check on Donnie and his family, but he was too late. Donnie had died in the night. The pastor did his best to comfort Donnie's parents. He prayed with them. He grieved with them. After a while, Donnie's mother asked the pastor a question. She asked him if he knew an explanation for something strange that had happened in the night. Donnie's parents had never seen anything like it before. She said, in the hours before Donnie died and right up until the moment that he did die, he held with his right hand onto his fourth finger, the ring finger of his left hand. Donnie died holding on to his finger. Well, the pastor began to weep and through his tears, he shared with Donnie's parents what he had said to their little boy the night before. That pastor wanted to explain to that precious little child who was right there on the edge of eternity the importance of being a Christian. He wanted to explain it to him in a way that a little child could understand. So he took Donnie's little hand. At first, he held onto his thumb, and he said, Thee, thee. He explained, Donnie, he is thee because he is one of a kind. Then he held onto his next finger, and he said, Lord, the Lord, God himself, The pastor took Donnie's third finger and said, is. He is right here. Donnie, he is in this room right here, right now with you. 
Then he took Donnie's forefinger and said, My, my. The pastor told him about a personal commitment and a personal relationship to Jesus Christ. And finally, he took his pinky finger and said, Shepherd. He is the shepherd who owns you, who died for you, who cares for you, and who loves you. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And even though Donnie had not been able to speak a word he had heard, and before he died, he put his hand around his finger to say, The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Well, the question that we have for you, friends, is, Are you in his flock? Is the Lord your shepherd? James, there may be someone listening today who does not have a personal relationship with the shepherd. So would you take a moment and share how a person can have that personal relationship? The Lamb of God wants to be your shepherd. All you have to do is admit your need. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We're we're all sinners. You just have to admit that. Be willing to turn from your sins. That's called repentance. You need to repent, turn away from your sins, and turn to Jesus Christ. Believe that Jesus died for you, and he rose from the grave. And then through prayer, you invite Jesus to come in and control your life through the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to receive him as Lord and Savior. You might pray something like this, Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness. I believe that you died for my sins and I want to turn away now from my sins and I invite you to come into my heart and life and I trust you and follow you as Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen to that. To get the complete look at Psalm 23, make sure you get today's featured resources. The Shepherd, book and DVD, will help you rediscover the joy, inspiration, and peace of this beloved psalm. Both the book and DVD answer the questions, does the 23rd psalm fit into messianic prophecy? What is the significance of restoration? Does the shepherd-sheep relationship parallel God and man? What is the meaning of the cup? You'll get answers to all of these questions and much more in The Shepherd, book and DVD. So order The Shepherd Collection today when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Both the book and DVD will encourage you and remind you of the hope you have with your Heavenly Father. 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or you can order online, swrc.com. That's swrc.com. My friends, would you please take a few moments today and check out the resources over at our website, swrc.com. Over 900 books and DVDs available for you, your family, church, or as a gift. Some of the top teachers featured on SWRC.com include Billy Crone, Jonathan Kahn, J.R. Church, David Weber, Michael Hoggard, and many, many more. Remember that when you purchase one of our resources, you are supporting the ministry and outreach of Watchmen on the Wall. So please visit SWRC.com. Ask Pat.
Pastor Larry is a segment here on Watchmen on the Wall where Pastor Larry answers questions about the Bible, the Christian life, and end times. Today's question is about faith. Pastor Larry, is faith God's gift to only a few? And is grace irresistible? There is not a single passage in the Bible that says faith is God's gift to only a few people. Hyper-Calvinists hold that position, but I don't believe that view can be supported by the Bible. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 tell us, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. This is one of the verses that has been appealed to. In reading the English translation, you might get the idea that faith is the gift of God. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And if you hold to unconditional election, God's choosing of some before time began and neglecting everyone else, then you might be inclined to conclude that faith is God's gift only given to a select number of people whom God has chosen to be saved. But we need to remember that the language of the New Testament is not like the English language. New Testament Greek, like some other languages like Latin and German, have different word forms. Words change form to make the meaning of sentences more precise. In fact, that's why some of Paul's sentences in the Greek of the New Testament are extremely long. In English, that one sentence is broken up into three or more sentences. But because of the nature of the Greek language, the reader knows exactly what is being said and doesn't need sentence divisions. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For by grace are ye saved through faith. Now the word faith is in the feminine form. The next word, that, is not in the feminine form. It is in the neuter form. Now, what does that mean? It means the phrase, and that, none of yourselves, is not referring to faith. Faith is not the gift of God. It is indisputable. The Greek grammar should put an end to all controversy. A.T. Robertson, the well-known Greek scholar and author of Word Pictures in the New Testament, says this, quote, Grace is God's part. Faith is ours. The words and that is neuter, not feminine. And that refers not to faith or to grace, but to salvation by grace conditioned on faith on our part. Close quotes. So if Paul wanted to say that faith is not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God, Paul could have used a feminine form for that, but he did not. Some sovereign grace people will argue that if we are saved on the basis of our faith, then that is a meritorious work, and Scripture says quite clearly that no one is saved by works. I have to object. Faith is not considered a work in Scripture. The Bible consistently places faith in opposition to works. Faith exercised to receive a completely free gift is not a work. It is an admission that we realize our utter inability to perform a work. Receiving a gift by faith is no more meritorious than the act of a beggar receiving a handout. In Scripture, faith makes a big difference. We see that in the Apostles' explanation of the righteousness attained by the Gentiles but missed by Israel. It had nothing to do with a divine decree, but everything to do with faith. I want to read from Romans 9, verses 30 through 33. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. 
For they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. There is not a single statement here about God's sovereign decree. The difference in the outcome between Jew and Gentile is based on the faith of the Gentiles, which is completely absent in Israel's response to God. They sought righteousness through obedience to the law. That was wrong. There is another related question that I want to address, and that is about so-called irresistible grace. That is not a term that is found in the Bible, and I don't believe that the thought is even in the Bible. Irresistible grace is a term that grows out of a theological system. It is necessitated by a system that says God chooses some to be saved, and God chooses to bypass all others and leave them in their sin and misery. Their eternity will be spent in the fires of hell. If God has chosen some to be saved, then their salvation is guaranteed. God will irresistibly draw them into the kingdom. God's powerful drawing of these people who have been selected by God to be saved will overcome all resistance and hostility. That is irresistible grace. But if grace is irresistible and will conquer those whom God has decided to save, why pray? Why go and follow Jesus' command to make disciples of all nations? Obviously, Paul did not know about irresistible grace. In Romans 10, verse 1, Paul confesses to his readers, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. In Romans 9, 1, 2, and 3, Paul writes, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bear me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. But Paul doesn't know that all of this focused compassion is in vain. Grace is irresistible. God will save his elect. It is called irresistible grace. What will be so? Why sweat it? Of course, I'm being facetious. So getting back to my original point, faith is not a gift given by God to only some people, and grace is not irresistible. And so we need to be ready to tell others about Jesus, to be instant in season and out of season. We need to pray to God that he would give us a burdened heart and that we would have the ability, the strength, and the compassion to go out and to tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. The Shepherd, book and DVD by James Collins, explores the rich meaning behind the world's best-known and most loved poem. The book and DVD explain its extraordinary power to change lives and ease our troubles. Make sure you order The Shepherd book and DVD today when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or you can always order online, swrc.com. That's swrc.com. And when you order, make sure you ask how you can receive free shipping. And when you purchase a resource, a book, or DVD from Watchmen on the Wall, please know that you are supporting the mission of bringing clarity to the chaos through Christ. Thank you. 
Tomorrow on Watchmen on the Wall, Rabbi Zev Perot will begin to unmask the Chaldean spirit. So be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station or by downloading our SWRC mobile app or simply subscribe to our daily Watchmen on the Wall podcast. Watchmen on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners just like you. Visit swrc.com. That's swrc.com.